Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to those who are worshiping in person and those that are worshiping online. Uh, it's great to have you here on this uh, wonderful Palm Sunday. I'm Brian, the associate pastor here, and I'll be bringing you the word today from Matthew, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 11. So I invite you to stand as you're able in body and spirit in honor of the gospel reading for today. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and sat on them. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the roads, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but whenever I get ready for a trip that's going to be a long distance, I have a little bit of a checklist and I kind of go through to make sure I've got everything in order before I leave. Like, okay, first, did I schedule time off to go on this trip? Is it when the kids can come if it's a family trip? Do they have any other things on their schedule that we need to be aware of? Do we have a destination and a hotel or a condo, Airbnb available for when we want to go? Let's go check it out. And then you get on the hunt for the best price, okay, for the time that you're there. And then you may have to fly, right? So you go on, online and you get real depressed when you see how expensive plane tickets are. But you find the best one, and then you go ahead and book your flight for your destination. Or if you're driving, you make sure you have your car maintenanced and ready to go for the trip. I'm bad about doing all that on the day before the trip, and we're always rushed to the deadline of getting the car out of the shop before we go on the trip. I'm trying to learn. But then once you get all that together, then you're like, okay, what do I need to pack? What kind of snacks do I need to bring? What are the plans and the itineraries for the trip? It's a lot involved, especially if you're going with more than just yourself, to plan and go on a trip that requires some travel time and time away from the home. But have you ever really thought about how much energy and effort it takes to plan a trip for our president to travel within the country? It takes a lot of effort for that to happen. A lot of effort for that to happen. I've been in Washington, D.C. before on a field trip where the president was out of town and everybody in D.C. was just relieved because the roads weren't going to get shut down randomly for the motorcade to drive through or certain parts of the parks weren't going to be closed down for the helicopter to land. You had more freedom to move about because when the president's in Washington and he's moving or she moving about, things get kind of planned out, shut down for that travel so they can travel safely. But especially when they go somewhere outside of D.C., there's a lot of planning involved. It takes months or weeks for this trip to be planned. The hotel that the president and the administration are going to stay at have been strategically picked 
to fit the needs of the administration of the president that goes, all right, and they shut down the entire wing above the hotel room of the president and the administration and below. It's really secured and locked down. All the roads get closed down. The airport, there's a no-fly area over the airport from when the president's airplane lands and messes up air traffic for a little while. And then when the motorcade gets to its destination and gets and does its speeches, a lot of people are security checked. There's a lot of vetting of the location. It just goes on and on and on, even to the point where in some areas the utility companies go out in advance of the trip and clear out any type of trees that might knock out power. There's an emergency crew on standby if the power goes out at the airport for the airport to get emergency power so the president can get out. There's just like, it goes on and on and on and on. And if you see any interviews of former presidents, they usually get kind of frustrated from all that. And I can imagine that would be frustrating, right? If you just want to go down the street or go somewhere for a visit, it's just not like you can go. They, they don't drive when they're in office. They get driven around all the time. Just think of the little freedoms we have. They don't because they're president, because of the security that's involved. But whenever a president comes in town, it's very staged, Okay, it's very staged. There are usually people there. Protesters are kept to a safe distance. Supporters and excited people are on front stage to make the news and all that kind of stuff. I remember when I was in high school, and I went to high school here at Madison Central, and George W. Bush was coming to Madison Central to speak. And this was shortly after 9-11. So you can only imagine the security that was involved when he came to Madison Central to come speak here in Madison. They even, the homes that are on the back fence of Madison Central over there in Cypress Lake, people were kicked out of their homes and security forces were put in the bonus room windows in case they ever needed to take out any threats of the president. That's how intense the planning is for when they travel around. Okay, That's our modern day you know, high government official. Okay, Well, what this story does, what the Palm Sunday story does... It shows you a little bit of the inner workings of Rome, Jerusalem, but also Jesus and the Jewish people and how they expected their king, their leader, to enter in into Jerusalem and retake it for them. There was prophecies on how this was going to look, how it's going to take place, when it was going to take place. And Jesus knew all of this. And this story highlights that Jesus is the true king. And the people there on that day, the first day of Passover week, were seeing the things click into place as Jesus rode into town. And so today we're going to look at that. And also we're going to look at, too, is remember our series, and this is the last of our series of Lent, The Devils and the Details. You don't hear much about the devil in this story. But trust me, the devil is present in the background waiting for its moment, okay? And that moment plays out shortly after, during Holy Week. But we'll begin to look at also, where is the devil in a lot of this time here, okay? What's going on and what's about to play out during Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday? So let's take a look at this. Let's go back to the first six verses here. It says, When they heard, or when they had come from Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this. The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. And this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, 
Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Okay, so this moment here is a very dramatic moment that Jesus has picked. As I said, it's the first day of Passover week. Passover was a big, big deal for the city of Jerusalem. It was one of their pilgrimage festivals, holidays, where you didn't just celebrate if you were a Jewish person in your homes. You trekked to Jerusalem to do this festival and the Passover to observe it. So you had a lot of -of out-of-towners in the city of Jerusalem. It doubled in size of population. Jesus knew there would be a crowd, and he intently picked that moment for the crowd to see. So this was a high-tense moment. Okay, You can only imagine the Roman officials and the temple officials were on high alert for any type of protest, revolt, rebellion. Okay, Because there's tension between the Jewish people and the Pharisees and the temple leaders and the Roman government. Rome will allow cities they conquer to observe whatever faith they want to observe and keep their religious leaders there as long as... They do not go against Rome. But if they go against Rome, Rome will sack that religion and get rid of it. So as long as you pay your taxes to Caesar, and as long as you don't have rebellion against Rome, you're pretty much free to do what you want as a town. So the religious leaders were cautiously watching Jesus because they didn't want him to spark any form of rebellion that would cause the hand of Rome to come down upon them. And Roman officials also, especially ones that were directly over the city, were going to be on high alert because they want to keep their city in order so Caesar doesn't remove those officials and replaces them. All right, so there's a lot of tension in this moment. A lot of people here, Passover week, and now you have Jesus riding in on a colt and a donkey. See, the reason why he picked Those animals is because it's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet, while exiled in Babylon, about 580 B.C. So that's 580-something years before this event, prophesied about this moment. That the king of Israel will ride in, humble, into the city. And see, the prophet Daniel, about 10 years afterwards, but he was in a different place. He prophesied about the timing as well. And Jesus knew about these prophecies, and they were all aligning as part of God's plan. And so here you have them in this moment. And so there's prophecies getting fulfilled. He's coming in on a donkey. Not a horse, but a donkey, which is what royalty used to ride in the time of King David. They didn't have horses. That's when they rode in on. But humble. Because at this time, donkeys were for humble people because there were horses there because of Rome. But Pilate and the Roman generals, they rode the horses. But here comes Jesus showing an Old Testament way of a king, but also in a humble way. It's a different type of king. And these people quite not, they hadn't gotten that message yet. But they were all excited about it. So here he comes riding in. Verse 7, they, they brought the donkey and the colt. And they put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. And a large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him. And they followed him. And they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, what is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. 
Pilate would have been coming to Rome on the first day of Passover. That was the Roman tradition. Whenever a Roman governor enters your city, there's a procession of chariots, soldiers. It's a big to-do because Rome is coming to town. Show of force. And here he is. And Pilate normally enters the west gate of Jerusalem. But from what we know from the other Gospels, Jesus entered in on the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And so if, imagine if you only had a drone that you could fly above Jerusalem in that moment and see the parading of Rome coming into the west and the parading of Jesus, the Messiah, coming in from the east and the people waving their palms. This city was on fire. It was on fire. And all of this was happening at a moment that God ordained. And you see the people shouting Hosanna were thinking this is the moment that Rome falls. But they just didn't understand the type of Messiah that was entering their city, into their city. Jesus was not going to leave that city now as he enters in unless he's on a cross. So here's this moment. This high tense moment where everybody's pouring in. And when the crowd shout Hosanna, it's one of the words that aren't necessarily translated into English. But when you translate it, it says, save us. Save us. It's not hallelujah. It's save us. They're waving palm branches because in the Old Testament scriptures, whenever the Jewish people were victorious, palm branches were brought in. So there's this moment of, of having hope. We're waving the palm branches. We're laying the cloaks down as we do for royalty. But all the time we're saying, save us. Save us. Save us. Save us. They're asking to save us. Save them from the Roman government and the oppression. You know it was a political moment because they said, save us. Son of David. David was a king, a political figure that ruled over Israel. At one of his pinnacle moments. And so they were reflecting back to that. Echoing back to that. Save us. Save us son of David. Our Lord save us. But what you and I know is Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to save them and all of us in a different way. And not in the way that they expected. And so when he enters into the city... As he gets ready to set the stage for the week to come. It says there in the scriptures when he entered the whole city was in turmoil. The other time that that city was in turmoil is when King Herod heard of the news that the Savior had been born. And now the Savior has returned to claim what is his. And the city was in turmoil. And when the crowds began asking who is this? The response was the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And that is where we are left with this passage. He has entered the city. The stage has been set. Prophecies fulfilled. It is now time for Christ to become the Messiah. Now, in all of this, the devil's taking a little bit of a back seat. But the devil has a plan. He has a plan for this week. His goal, this is one of the few rare times where the devil's goal and God's goal actually are the same. Okay? But they're both aiming also for different results. Both of them want the cross to happen. 
The devil and God both want the cross to happen. They both want to see Jesus on the cross, but for different reasons. What the devil hopes or wants is that when these crowds who are shouting, Hosanna, see their Messiah nailed to the cross without any clothes in a humiliating way, they will give up. They will lose hope. Remember that. The devil wants you to lose hope. God's plan is for Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice, the Passover lamb, that pays the way for our salvation so we can be reconciled to him and have victory over death. Same goal, different results is what they're aiming for here. And so this week, Holy Week, you will see the devil at play trying to get people to lose hope. Because the opposite of faith is not doubt. Faithful people can have doubt. Okay? That's part of faith. That's part of having a mature faith. It produces stronger faith when you wrestle through doubt. The opposite of faith is the lack of hope. It's the lack of hope. And that is what the devil was driving towards. You see it there. When the disciples, they didn't quite get what Jesus was going to do. Judas thought Jesus was going to be that military savior. But the devil played on Judas. And he gave up hope. And turned Jesus over. And when Jesus didn't fight back, Judas gave up. He lost hope, and the devil picked him off. The crowds, the same crowds that were shouting, Hosanna, save us with palm branches, and getting excited. By Thursday night into Friday morning, they lost hope. They gave up on Jesus, and they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. Set Barabbas free. Crucify him. We've lost hope. So the devil's in play in that scene, tempting people to give up hope on the Savior. When Scripture says that Jesus went out to the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and he was tempted three times and the devil left him until the next opportune time, as one of the gospel accounts said, Many people believe that commentators believe that the devil came back to Jesus when he was praying in the garden. That that was the next opportune time. So the devil's at play here this whole entire time behind the scenes. And so that, that should awaken us when we look at this scene here as we journey through this week. And I encourage you, if you're available on Thursday and Friday at 6 o'clock, both nights, come to these services, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Because it really gives a fuller meaning and, and feeling of Easter Sunday. When on, sun, when on Friday you feel the hopelessness that everybody felt when he was nailed to the cross and died. But yet, the excitement of what Sunday brings for Easter Sunday. But what that means for us, there are moments in our own lives, if we're honest with ourselves, where we do lose hope. We do lose hope. We don't see a way out of that situation. And we give up. But it's in those moments, though, as Christians, we're called to hang on to our faith. We are called to hang on to the hope that the God that created this whole world, the God that had a plan for Jesus Christ and amidst all of this, that that is a God of love that loves us 
and would like to see us fulfill our calling and that we don't need to give up hope that there's not a plan for us. That we are called to go out and share the good news. We are called to share in the faithfulness of others. And so I think we can learn a lot to not be like the crowds that turned on Jesus and shouted crucify him just five days later. I think we're called to have moments where in our weakness that we lean on him. And we lean on others in faith. Because remember, the lack of hope is the opposite of faith. And so if you don't want to go down that path, lean on the faith side. Lean on it even harder in those times where you don't see a way out. And I think as a church, too, as the church body, we are faced with moments in our, in our existence of like, where are we supposed to go, God? What are we supposed to do with so much hurt in the world? What are we called to be? And I think in those moments, we go to God and lean on our faith, lean on each other, and discern what he calls us to do. We need to be on guard against what the devil's trying to do, and that's trying to tempt us and give up, and give up hope. Uh, one of the sayings that people have said before, and I think it's true, that a lot of times the devil can keep you pretty busy too, Right? To where you don't even have to think about your faith. And that will give him the freedom to run around. So I think we're called in this time and this week to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus. The type of Messiah that he really is. And give thanks. Today is uh, not only Palm Sunday, but we also have the ability to be a part of Holy Communion. Which is one of the sacraments of our church. Communion is just not a remembrance of what happened that night, but it's also an opportunity for us to join in in that moment with the disciples when Jesus was with them in the upper room during Holy Week. It is a moment for us when we take the bread and the juice to experience the grace of God and have that enter into us where we are now one with God. 